0: The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team.
1: 25 years ago, the late William Strauss and Neil Howe wrote a book called The Fourth Turning, An American Prophecy. The authors looked back over 500 years of history and uncover a distinct pattern. Modern history moves in cycles, each one lasting about the length of a human life, and each composed of four 20-year eras or turnings that comprise history's seasonal rhythm of growth, maturation, entropy, and rebirth. We're here today to talk with Neil Howe on his new book and sequel, The Fourth Turning Is Here, What the Seasons of History Tell Us About How and When This Crisis Will End. And Neil, the first question I'd like to ask for listeners that may not be familiar with your work, what is the fourth turning and how does this fit into your
2: generational theory? Well, Bill and I started embarking on this approach to looking at history even long before the fourth turning appeared in 1997. We wrote a book in 1991 called Generations, which was actually the foundation for a lot of our later work. And what we were interested in is how generations differ from each other and how they are related to important changes that occur in American history, We were surprised to learn what we wanted to do was to tell uh, the entire history of America as a sequence of generational biographies, kind of collective biographies, right, of how each generation was raised as children, came of age, you know, went through its leadership years, grew old, and so on. And how All of the events of its life look differently, right, from the viewpoint of where it was in life, differently than other generations who might have been older or younger at the time. And we were surprised that no one had done this before. It is a really penetrating way to look at history. When you think about how history is told, it's usually you talk about what everyone is doing at any given year, right? I mean, you know, what was everyone doing in 1851? And typically, you're talking about people in midlife, right? And then the next year, you, you ask the same question but you don't get any sense of continuity about how people are actually living their lives. If you think of history as, you know, time on the x-axis and age on the y-axis, we all live a diagonal line, right? Every year that goes by, we get older. So we see time from a unique perspective as individuals, right? And a generation is just a group of diagonal lines. And so an event is a vertical line through all those diagonals. And you can see how any event looks differently to those who may be children, as opposed to those who may be in midlife or older. I mean, think of you know how World War II looked to someone who was, you know, maybe even remembered the Civil War as a child, right, as to those who were children during that time and every subsequent invented history. And what impressed us about this as we look back, is we found that these generational differences are profound. They go all the way back in American history. They weren't just invented by Xers and Boomers. And not only that, but that certain generations tended to follow other generations, right, that the succession of generational types or collective personalities was not random. For example, every time you have a rebellious or a generation like boomers who are protectively raised during an era of peace, usually after a crisis, coming of age, attacking the institutions their parents had built with very kind of idealistic and utopian objectives, these kinds of generations are always followed by much more materialist, pragmatic, even cynical generations, which uh, talk a lot less and Pursue the bottom line more. We're all familiar with Xers coming after Boomers, but you know, think about the generation of Ralph Waldo Emerson and Walt Whitman and even Abraham Lincoln, followed by the generation of George Armstrong Custer and Ulysses Grant. You know, that was called the Gilded Generation, a generation of metal and muscle who really didn't talk a lot but got a huge dirty jobs done. Very different collective persona and a very different self image of their role in history, and you can see this pattern again and again. And then following these survivalist generations, you see generally the mounting of a moral panic over children and a much more protected generation coming after that. We're very familiar with millennials today and how they're different from Xers. These are the baby on board, right? Kids. These were the ones with, instead of childless devil horror movies, they had the cuddly baby movies and much more protected, structured upbringings, much more into teamwork rather than individual survival. Very different collective. Again, self-image, different set of attitudes and behaviors, and again, this is characteristic. We've seen that pattern again and again. Well, what does all this lead to? If there's a pattern to generational persona, and these generational persona are connected to great historical events, that must mean there's a pattern to history itself. And in fact, these succession of generational types is tied to a rhythm that people have often noticed, and that is that about the length of a long human life separates all the great periods episodes of civic reconstruction in American history, the times when we rebuild the outer world of politics, economics, infrastructure radically from the ground up. And this starts with the last quarter century of the 17th century, you know, the period of the Glorious Revolution and Bacon's Rebellion and King Philip's War at really a terrible time of warfare and rebellion and even revolution in the colonies. About a lifetime later, you had the American Revolution, and a lifetime later, you had the Civil War, and a lifetime later, the World War II and the Great Depression, and a lifetime later, here we are again, right? Now, these are the fourth turnings of American history. These are these outer world crises, and they have a pattern as we move through them. And roughly halfway in between these outer world crises, we have the inner world upheavals when we reshape the inner world of culture and religion, of the arts, of values, as we would say today. And it's very conveniently in American history, these are numbered. These are the great awakenings, right? And many historians think of the late 60s and 70s, the time when boomers are coming of age, as America's fourth or fifth great awakening, depending on if you want to start your count with John Winthrop back in the 17th century or Jonathan Edwards back in the 18th century. So, Around these things, you begin to see a pattern, right? A pattern of four seasons that together comprise the length of human life. And you can kind of think of these as what we call four turnings, distinct social moods. The first turning comes after the crisis. This is usually an upbeat era of strong institutions and weak individualism. We all recall the American high, the presidencies of Truman and Eisenhower and John Kennedy. And then we recall the awakening, right? The consciousness revolution, the period of late 60s and 70s and early 80s when boomers are coming of age. And that was a period when we wanted to really get rid of all that social discipline, refine ourselves and really individuate America. we didn't feel all these strong institutions were so necessary. this really started in the culture much more you I think we would say today on the left mainly on inner cities and college campuses but I think by the late 70s and 80s it was deregulation and tax cuts is a little bit more on the right and that but the common theme of that era was we don't need to be regimented everyone should be left to go pretty much their own way we all needed to be more lightly governed. The third turning or the fall season is really an era that started in the late 80s and went through the 90s, the early 00s. And that was a period when characteristically institutions were weakening, individualism was strengthening. And historically, these have all included decades of of wild entrepreneurship and uh, risk-taking. These were the roaring 90s or the roaring 20s or the 1850s, the 1760s. These were all decades of cynicism and bad manners and weak civic authority, and that ultimately these eras always end in a fourth turning, which is an order-seeking era when we all find ways of reconnecting, usually very often through conflict, and re-establish a sense of national community, and in the process actually redefine and give birth to a new definition of what it means to be a republic.
1: I want to take something from your book and talks about where we are today. And it was from a headline you quote in a newspaper, how to tell when your country is past the point of no return. Incompetent governance, ebbing public trust, declining public compliance all feed on one another in a vicious cycle. One symptom is the rise of free-floating anger in public venues. Airlines, restaurants, hospitals, public or police report an epidemic of unruliness, road rage, traffic deaths are up, as are random mass shootings, headlines denoting fear, disgust, and especially anger. And finally, the public braces itself for the dark hour when the Fed can no longer ease and Congress can no longer borrow money, no matter how badly the economy founders. And I wonder if you might bring us up to where we are now in this crisis stage because I've never seen, at least in my lifetime and yours, where the country is so divided and so intolerant of other views.
2: Well, these are characteristic of of fourth turnings. And I think it's useful to think about, you know, we're about halfway through. And you ask where we are. We started this with the GFC, really, of 2008 and we don't expect it to be over until the early 2030s, right? So we have, you know, a good decade to go. And I think it's useful to think about earlier fourth turnings in a way that we usually don't. I mean, we all know about the Great Depression. We know about the 30s and the dust bowl and the breadlines lines and all the rest. What we often don't reflect on was a decade of incredible hopelessness about the future of America and incredible partisanship and division right America was hugely divided by FDR and the New Deal there was the those who supported the New Deal and the popular front crowd thought of the 1930s as the fascist decade i mean there were countries in Europe that were being you know succumbing to fascist dictatorships democracy seemed on the ropes during that decade and of course, to FDR's opponents who called him Franklin Stalino Roosevelt, it was the red decade, right? But one thing has seemed clear is that the whole world was going to go either communist or fascist, right? There seemed to be a lack of any confidence that liberal democracy and open ended capitalism had any future. And I think that's something to remember. I mean, today we think about, we look at this rise of authoritarianism and populism, which always kind of go together, not just, you know, in our country, but even more around the rest of the world, virtually all around the world really responding to many of the same generational forces that we see in America and we see the rise of this around the world and we see, well, we've been here before. We see the decline of global trade as a share of global product since the GFC. Well, we were there before. What do you think happened after 1929, right? We see the decline of the number of free countries. We saw that in the 1930s. Well, we've seen the same thing since 2008. Because look at the Freedom House or VDEM and their account of the share of the world that's living in free governments. I mean that's again been on the decline and since 2008. We are living through this period of radicalism and the searching of the younger generation, which is the least likely to believe in democracy and to looking for something more radical, something that produces more order, right? that truly mobilizes people for the good of the country in a very direct way, and that's really given up on the idea that you know Congress and deliberative bodies, which the public no longer trusts at all, can actually get anything done. And I think it's important to realize that it's younger generations, again, not just in America, but around the world, that are the most dubious about democracy, according to the rules that we've learned, will get us out of this. We saw the same thing happening before. And I will say that the motive to seek out new communities through partisanship is what we saw in the 30s. It's what we saw today. It's what we saw increasingly in the 1850s as the prequel to the Civil War. It's what we saw before the American Revolution. And we say it today and we call them red zone and blue zone, right? So these are things we've seen before. And I think even the attitudes of the different generations involved are eerily familiar to us if we take a look back and look at them closely.
1: I want to talk about how do you see this fourth turning, unfolding? In the latter part of your book, you paint some really dark possible scenarios, Uh, you know, a possible conflict where weapons of mass destruction are used, a diminished America or America could emerge unvanquished and intact. How do you see this unfolding in your opinion?
2: Well, I'm a huge optimist. I mean, I believe in the future of America. I think America has had largely successful resolutions of fourth turnings in the past, and I very much hope it will do so again. In fact, I think that the idea of a fourth turning that culminates or climaxes in conflict and that truly mobilizes the nation sounds dangerous, and it is. But what's even worse would be a continuation of today's trends, right? Without relief, right? I mean, think of where we're going. I mean, think of the decline in civic life. Think of the rising partisanship, the inability to cooperate on any civic issue, the increasing division between rich and poor, the fact that the younger generations have given up on generational mobility, and we're just mounting enormous liabilities on our future with no thought to investing in a newer, better world for the young. This should terrify us. And One of the great things about fourth turnings is for all the danger you go through, they allow the country by reinventing itself to actually establishing new institutions, which take the whole playing field of politics and tilts it again to the young and to the future and away from the privileged to a new sense of a level playing field these periods that follow fourth turnings generally tend to be periods of greater equality, not just in terms of Gini coefficients, you know, with income and wealth, although they are that, but also just a sense of social equality. You know, people feel more equal. Now, we may look back upon that with some discomfort. You know, we look back upon the, the suburbia, right, with people living in identical looking houses and buying identical looking washing machines and so on. And we think, gee, they were so conformist and they copied one another. But they did have a sense of community and equality that we do not have today. And you can say the same thing about the Victorian high that followed the Civil War. These periods of great national community, which is exactly what we cannot achieve, is what we do achieve. After the fourth turning. This is the mood of the first turning. And so, Jim, as you were reading the last chapter, you see that we go into some depth about where we're going, about the first turning, which comes after the fourth turning. And very often, these first turnings are likened to people who experience them, maybe just in contrast to the fourth turning they've been through as golden ages, right, in our history, a time when the Republic is able to achieve a new order at home. And very often, a new order in the world. And so this is something to look forward to. This is an optimistic message, which if you just think that we're going to go on a continuous line forward from where we've been going over the past you know, couple of decades, you might not be as optimistic.
1: What are some of the challenges that we face as a nation during this turning. As I alluded to in reading from your book, and I mentioned about you know the disunity that you see today, the civil disorder. So what are some of the challenges that we face? In other words, what can go wrong here?
2: Typically, the best way to look at where the country is going is by looking at what the rising generation has to offer. After all, they're the new addition, right? We're going to get more of whatever it is they are. You know, so it's, we're fated to get that. And I think when you look back at the late 60s and 70s, right, all I think all generations participated in the shedding of the order that society was offering, right? And that gave rise to a lot of the conflict of the 60s. All generations participated in that. But I think it's easy to see that it was boomers at the time the rising generation that really represented the cutting edge of that, right? Uh, Wanting to discredit the World War II winning generation for their whatever it was that they built. You know, whether it was Vietnam or their rockets to the moon or their great society or whatever it was, it was too much. It was the wrong thing. And even the senior citizen label was uttered by boomers with a little bit of sarcasm. They were almost too good at being citizens, right? They weren't real human beings. and so on, right? So we knew what boomers were about. They wanted a less ordered world and a world in which individuals would be freer to do what they wanted. And we wouldn't be so worried about imposing order on everything. I think when you look at today's millennials, you see much the opposite. You see a generation which is searching for order. One of the things that boomers really disliked was the very powerful almost omnipresent middle class. I mean, middle class was a bad word, a word of opprobrium back in the late 60s. It was, you know, charcoal burning everywhere, you know, the famous monkey song. I mean, this was horrifying. I mean, why we were all being stamped into this conformist role. Why couldn't just people be allowed to go different ways, different strokes for different folks, right? Live differently. Well, you talk to millennials about middle class and their attitude is, where is it? I'd like to sign up. Sounds great, right? It's like we all get the same target date fund, right? I mean we all get to like, you know, enjoy sort of a common future. We all get to emulate each other. We're trying to do that anyway on social media. So where do we find it? So you see the difference? I think very often when we think about fourth turning as an order seeking era rather than an order-defying era, we begin to see what is on the longer term agenda of the rising generation. And it's very different from their, um, you know, their one-time hippie parents, right? At least those of the older millennials who are, who are likely to have boomer parents, right? So this is, as we point out in the book, a generational rhythm as old as time. And it's how each generation corrects and compensates, right, for the excesses of their parents. and But it does so through history.
1: What role do you see Gen Z and the boomers playing in this turning?
2: Well, every generation plays a role in the fourth turning. And typically, they play an archetype, a role. That is to say, each generation is entering a phase of life, tends to play the same role that other generations are playing, right, at a similar phase of life. So typically, what we call the profit archetype, and that would be boomers, right? Boomer-like generations, we call them the prophet archetype, no matter what saculum, you know, what century they're born in. They always have a very similar life cycle. They're always born right after the crisis. They're raised in the optimism of the post-war era. They come of age with this awakening event. They age into midlife, very values-fixated individualists. And in old age, as they enter old age, they take society into and through the next fourth turning. It's happened every time with this kind of generation in our history. And as they age, they become the detached, not really civic, obviously, because they've never really had any coming-of-age association with a great civic event, but they become very values-focused mentors for younger generations in the culture, right? I think this is what younger generations look up to boomers today, you know, not so much as paragons of what to do about politics or geopolitics or how to build anything, but rather for their huge imprint on the culture, right? And Millennials really respect them for what they did in the culture. I I know all the millennials I know, including my own kids, Jim, they all know all the songs, right, that that boomers ever sang. They really respect that Beatles to Eagles discography in a way that boomers never cared about. What their own parents did in the culture, but millennials do really do respect that, and it actually gives rise to a figure we talk about in the book of the gray champion, right—the very values fixated elder who is able to reconnect the rising generation with a sense of their country's culture, their heritage and basically ask them not to back down in the face of adversity. So that is the ray champion image ideally at its best of this values fixated older generation. Now, the next archetype we call the nomad archetype are the kids who were born and raised during the awakening. These are the survivalists. Uh, this is the survivalist generation. These would be Xers and they will be, in fact, they are. They're entering midlife during the fourth turning and they're taking over civic institutions, although because Xers never had a connection with civic life. In fact, Xers have been very slow to assume the slowest in American history that we've never had such a small share of people at this age bracket assume roles as, you know, House members, as senators, as state governors, they've been very slow to assume roles in leadership. Nonetheless, these are the uh, very pragmatic leaders, uh, very individualistic leaders that we see sort of very uncertainly beginning to take over uh, public institutions, and they will be the hands on managers of the climax of the crisis. That is to say, and very often, this is the generation that furnishes. The CEOs and the leaders and the generals who actually make the difference in the conflict between winning and losing. And this is a generation that typically furnishes to the great presidents after the struggle who actually played a huge role during determining how the struggle would play out. I mean, after all, this would be the generation of George Washington who was. The leader during the American Revolution. This is the generation of Ulysses Grant, and it was the generation of Dwight Eisenhower and George Patton, right? So you, you think of that kind of generation, right, in midlife during the during the fourth turning. And coming of age is what we call the hero archetype, of which you would see the GI generation, that we later called, you know, America's greatest generation. And we think too, fitting into that collective personality type would be millennials. The GI is very early on were a protected generation coming along during the progressive era, during the first couple of decades of the 20th century. And this was when a huge part of the progressive platform, Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, was protecting children, you know, child labor laws with teeth, protected playgrounds for children, vitamin pills, making sure that they weren't giving them allowances for good behavior rather than having them actually earn money in in dangerous factories or rolling cigars. And this effort to protect children is almost moral panic over children that existed during the progressive era. is a very important part of shaping these kids who came along just too late for World War I and separating them from older generations. And later on, during the 1920s, they molded a new image. Of young people. These young people, they weren't risk takers. They weren't like F. Scott Fitzgerald or Hemingway. They weren't, you know, disillusioned individualists. They didn't join the gin fizz crowd or the barnstormers or the rum runners of the roaring 20s. They settled down and became very much technocratic kids, looking forward to a more greater sense of national community. And in fact, when the great crash hit, this younger generation voted overwhelmingly for the New Deal by more than 80% majorities. According to surveys taken at the time in 1932 and 1936, first-time voters voted for FDR and the New Deal. This is the first generation. Of African Americans who voted, you know, who did not vote for the party of Abraham Lincoln, right? This became the great New Deal coalition, which really started with the GI generation. And later on, of course, they hunkered down, they rallied to the call during World War II, and they went on to conquer half the world and. They took a lot of that skill at organization back with them, and they built Levittown and the interstate highways and the Apollo moon launch program and all the rest that we know about them. But it's very interesting to realize that at the time, back in the '30s many of them were young radicals. Many of them joined the Communist Party. There were, you know, card-carrying members of the Comintern dedicated to the destruction of American capitalism. And and we forget that in retrospect. And, And maybe this is one place to just emphasize that the big danger of history, is seeing people in retrospect. In other words, seeing events in the past from the viewpoint of knowing how they all turned out. I think very often we see the GI generation and we think of them for, you know, as these all-American kids, right? They seemed like finished product, even in their youth. You know, they knew what they were gonna do and they knew all the great things they were gonna do for America. And we don't go back and we see these generations as they really were in the 30s. People worried a lot about whether the young people would, if called upon, serve. And in fact, what was very popular in the late 1930s, even as late as 1937, was signing the Oxford Peace Pledge, which was a pledge that if your country declared war, that you would not serve, right? You would not partake in that same horrible crusade for democracy that ruined everything, right, back in the First World War. So, it was actually somewhat of a surprise that this younger generation finally at the, you know, just a year or so before Pearl Harbor, proved suddenly so eager to join the struggle and to fight and to build a better world after the war.
1: It was interesting in your book, you talk about famous people that represent each one of this group. Like for the boomers, you have Newt Gingrich and Hillary Clinton, Gen X, Jeff Bezos, Kamala Harris, millennials, you have Mark Zuckerberg and Taylor Swift. So why did you
2: pick those just out of curiosity? Well, I think probably just because people would know who they were. We have a number of charts, you know, looking at sort of sample members. We just wanted to bring, you know, as I was picking names, sample names in some of these charts, I just wanted to make sure that people drew up an image, right, of people that they have seen, people they know. But I think it's fair to say as well that you can see in, in these people some of the attributes, right, that we sort of apply to people that age. You know, Taylor Swift is, I don't know how to put it. Jim, but Taylor Swift isn't Janis Joplin. You know what I mean?
1: Sure. (laughs) I want to get to something. Given the headlines that we see daily, the various news events, what advice do you have for people who are feeling
2: anxious or uncertain about the future right now? I think to... I have a lot of advice. I, you know, I think one thing is to trust the, the better instincts of the young. I think that's one thing that's always hard for older generations to do, right? We, we realize that even the older generations we venerate were once young. And I think that was one of the reasons I pointed out how, in some sense, wild and unsettled, the GI generation must have seemed like right, back in the late 1930s uh, to many older Americans. And yet, older Americans finally deputized them and enlisted them. And they fought with great organization, great determination, and great courage. And I think allowing these generational archetypes to realize their potential to unleash their own energy. These generations, as Ortike Igacet once said, and he was one of the great Generations theorists of the 1920s that I admire, he said, a generation is not a thing. It's not an entity. It's a trajectory. It has direction. It has ideals. It moves. And a generation is very different from other social categories for that very reason. You know, you think about, you know, the rich or the poor or uh, different races, different nationalities. You think about all Californians or, you know, whatever your social category, right? It has no time dimension. It's just sort of, you know, it just, simply sits there on the page. Generations are different. Generations are born. They live. They die. They have a limited ability in their lifetime to get certain things done. And they have aspirations that are different from who they are now. They want to achieve something that they haven't yet achieved yet. I think that is what is hopeful to me. If we realize that these younger generations, you look at millennials, you look at the generation coming after them. But I think just looking at millennials, you look, well, this generation is as yet unformed. But we would have said the same thing about the Republican generation back just before they had drafted the Constitution. We would have said the same thing about the greatest generation in the 30s. And to realize that to let them exert their energy. I think realizing that the hope of a successful resolution of a fourth turning could lead to a much better world beyond is another thing to reassure older people with. Very often, we have a sense of history as utterly unpredictable, you know, that we're dangling out at the end of history and literally anything could happen. Technology could take us anywhere. I don't think that's right. I think there are broader patterns that allow us to reconnect with the past and really allow us to take strength from our own heritage, from our history, from what we've been through before and say that, you know, I'm playing this role but others have played it before me. And if I play it well, we can get through this era and really create something much better on the other side. Now, personally for people, when people say, well, how do I personally deal with this era? I basically say, you know, look, expect a world in which all the official institutions around you, uh, particularly, you know, government is going to be probably a bit more preoccupied with the nation's welfare and and even survival than to necessarily look after you. All fourth turning eras have been great eras of depending upon and reconnecting with your community, your friends, your family It's very important sort of financially. I mean, in my day job, I'm I'm actually I work for hedge hedge risk management. I lead up the demography team. So, you know, these are my clients are wealth managers and people sometimes ask me personally, you know, how should I deal with things like long term care insurance and so on? all these questions about, you know, portfolios and diversification. Well, diversification is difficult in a fourth turning because, you know, at times of real crisis, all the correlations go to one, right? And so things tend to go down at the same time. I do advise people in this era to stay away from uh, nominally denominated fixed income. Inflation is always one of the ways in which government gets out from under the vast liabilities it's likely to incur. And I don't think that's going to be any different this time. And so, that's something you want to avoid. Financial repression is sort of the other arm of inflation. So, inflation devalues your asset and and financial repression means you can't sell it or get out of it, right? So, I think getting out of those nominally denominated assets is important. But I think I want to go back to this other theme about reconnecting with your family. I mean, your family is your long-term care insurance or your close friends. And I think many of us who got very used to the nineteen nineties and the OOs. I think the the third turning, right? The unraveling era. And I think the light motif of that era was really Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, right? Where you know we all become self-actualizing individuals. The marketplace was supreme. We we're all just gonna contract with other individuals, capitalism had triumphed, and governments would just wither away. So we would just be, you know, see the rootless individuals roaming around the world and contracting with other people and fulfilling all of our individual capabilities. I don't think that's where the world is led, Jim. I don't think that's where we were all going. I think we've come to a world to realize that what's reasserting itself is a world, this is a little bit more tribal and a world in which people really do need to recognize their dependence on communities, to acknowledge that, to connect with that. I think millennials understand that very well, which is why they're such a large share of them is still living with their Families, right? We've had the largest share of people in the late 20s, early 30s living with their families. When was the last time we had such a large share? The late 1930s, Jim. <laughs> Why is that? And remember back then, it was, I don't know if you recall those old uh, Frank Capra movies with uh, Jimmy Stewart, right? Yeah, uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. You can't take it with you. But Frank Capra always showed these. Multi-generational families living in these huge Victorian houses. Why? Because we couldn't build new houses during the Great Depression, right? And so that's where younger generations knew they had to stay, stay put there. And millennials realize the same thing. They're just doing it and then make mansions, right? That boomers might have bought back in the '90s or or '00s, right? And so we see again history repeating itself. I think looking for that sense of connection. And I say again, if millennials. Are at the cutting edge of the new trends we see today, the yearning for connection, the fear of loneliness is more exaggerated among millennials and older generations. In the popular culture, the word FOMA, right, fear of missing out, which is, you know, everyone attributes to millennials, I think says something very important about how they think about life, right? It's all about community. It's all about connecting. It's all about not feeling alone and know that you have the support of other people who have your back. It's
1: interesting, Neil. You just brought up some memories. Uh, When my parents first got married and I was born, they were living with their parents. So once again, that reflection, how it repeats itself. Given where we are now, and we're about halfway through this fourth turning. What are some of the
2: things you are most optimistic about for the future? Most optimistic about, you know, again, I think I've said that. I think I'm most optimistic about history itself, how it roots us how it reassures us, you know, that there will always be another day, right? Things will not stay on the same trajectory and not I can just say that philosophically, but looking at the rhythms of the past, we can actually begin to foretell when it's going to change, right? And which generations will be moving into new phases of life when we expect it to change, right? And this this expectation of both generational change and social mood change is something that was there at the very beginning. when. Bill and I wrote our first book, uh, Generations. It came out in 1991 and we looked at all these different generations. We came to the 14th generation, which was the little kids, you know, born after the early 1980s, right? And the oldest of them were only eight years old and we didn't know what to call them. And when we wrote our book, actually released it, even Gen X did not yet have a name yet. Doug Coupland had not yet published Gen X. So, his that, old, that young adult generation did not yet have a name. But these kids certainly didn't have a name. In fact, absolutely no one was thinking about them yet. Well, we were thinking about and we already knew kind of what generation they were likely to become because of this panic over kids, right? Uh, we kind of saw that, oh yeah, this is the formation of another civic archetype. We've seen this before. We need to give them a name. So, we thought, well, the oldest of this, these kids born in 1982 would be the high school class of 2000. So, the name we invented was Millennial. So, if you want to know where the name Millennial came from, well, that was it. That name took a while to catch on. It had a competitor for a long time and the competitor was Gen Y, right? Generation Y. Y comes after X. So, the idea with the Gen Yers would be even more alienated, more risk-taking, wilder, uh, more edgy in the culture even than uh, the Nexers were but that was the wrong conceit. That was the wrong assumption. That was the assumption. Each generation would be more like the last. That's wrong, right? Each generation turns the corner on the last. And I think that that is what we need to... That actually can be in an era like we have now a comforting, right, uh, realization. Think about it. If every generation is like the last, but more so, civilization would have gone off a cliff thousands of years ago, Jim. Right. That can't be true. There has to be a process of correction and compensation. And it's exactly that process that we spell out. And I think that process is grounds for optimism. You don't like what you see around you today. That's mainly what older generations are doing. Well, again, right. Compensation and correction. uh, That should be grounds for optimism.
1: So given the fact that we're midway through this fourth turning, and I think you have the year 2033 is when this cycle comes to an end, given that the next will be a high that follows, Neil, what is your vision for the United States in 2050?
2: What do you see the
1: country looking like in 2050?
2: very different from today and the you know you look back at the great highs of the past you see a world in which is a society in which individualism will be won't be nearly as important as it is today as we've been accustomed you know to thinking of it as and the community will much more important and that will have both You know, that will be both good and bad, right? There is no such thing as a good or bad turning. It's just a different mix. It's a different balance. You know, we think in retrospect, uh, those of us who remember the era and those of us who don't, we just imagine what it was like. But think about the 1950s, right? What did people like about it? What did people not like about it? Well, that's a touchy subject. One thing is for sure is that people were much more modest about themselves individually, but together they felt like they got big community things done right? This was a country that had a big future ahead of it, that was building great things, that was reshaping the world. And this is what we've lost today. And I think that's what we will regain. And it's interesting, we look back on the 1950s, the 1950s, even at the time, by the way, it was heavily criticized. It was by no means everyone thought it was a golden age. My God, Melvina Reynolds sang that song about little boxes, you know, on the hillside, all made of ticky tacky and they all look just the same. The, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Manchurian Candidate and all of the people who wrote David Reisman, who wrote about the you know other directed people who just looked at, you know didn't know what they were about themselves. They just followed social cues of other individuals. The sense of sort of phoniness, no personal authenticity, casual racism and sexism. And you could go down the list, right? I don't think that's very hard to do. But think about the things that this 50s did achieve. Very rapid. Gains in, in uh, median wages, you know, much more rapid than we, than people ever saw before. And we've seen ever since a very strong and powerful middle class that actually got stronger. The distribution of income and wealth became more equal by the time we reached the late 50s, and even more when we reached the mid 1960s. Um, unions were strong. People actually trusted the system. And when experts told people what to do, they actually actually followed experts advice. I mean, you can see how, look, I mean, a lot of conservatives, they look back and they say, well, the 50s, that sounds pretty good. I mean, the churches were full and crime was low. But think about uh, things that progressives might like, right? Think about people who follow the experts or think about large unions. Or think about even issues that we sometimes criticize the 50s for, which is being retrograde on issues like race and civil rights. Well, minorities had very strong wage and standard of living gains during the 1950s. In fact, much stronger than whites in terms of home ownership and average real wages just raced ahead during the 1950s and early, early 60s. Families remained very strong. And at the end of that era, we passed the great civil rights bill. Congress and bipartisan both Republicans and Democrats passed the civil rights legislation of 1964, you know, ensuring that the rights that were originally offered at the end of the Civil War could eventually be enforced. Would we do as much today? I don't know. And even in the area of sexual repression, which is one thing that people often ridicule about the 1950s. I don't know if anyone has seen the movie um, Pleasantville, which came out in the late 1990s, but really makes fun of the black and white. 1950s for uh you know, being so repressive sexually. Well, look at all the problems young people are having today with sexuality. I'll, I'll tell you, people were much more enthusiastic. Young people were much more enthusiastic about sex back in the 1950s than they are today. And young adults were doing a lot more of it than they are today. You really wonder, Jim, who should be calling you a wasteland, right? But I think this new appreciation of the, some of the things we did achieve in the 1950s, not taking away anything from the things we obviously did not. Is something that we should expect because we're actually getting closer and closer to re entering an era of history that may be somewhat similar.
1: Well, absolutely amazing. And just, uh, I want to go back to your first book, The Fourth Turning. When you wrote it in 1997, we were the internet, uh, computers, cell phones were becoming ubiquitous. It was a new technological revolution. Nobody would ever believe that. In probably a period of eight or a decade, we would be entering a crisis, going back to the crisis of 2008. So, I want to recommend your book, The Fourth Turning is Here What the Seasons of History Tell Us About How and When This Crisis Will End. A very unique look at the way history unfolds. Neil, I want to thank you for joining us on the program. Excellent book. I enjoyed reading it as I
2: did your first book. Thank you so much, Jim